Welcome to AgTech360, where we take a 360-degree view into emerging agriculture technologies that matter with our host, Adrian Percy. So this is Adrian Percy with AgTech360, and I am delighted today to welcome Professor David Suchoff, who is an alternative crop extension specialist and assistant professor here at NC State. And David and I are going to talk about alternative crops, what they are, and what the future essentially of agriculture will look like, you know, what crops are coming to a farm or a field near you, essentially. So David, welcome. Oh, Andrew, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm real excited to talk about all of the fun crops we get to work with, some of the successes and also some of the challenges that we've had with it. Yeah, so you obviously know North Carolina intimately, but tell me a little bit about your background and how you've got to this position today. Well, I'm originally from North Carolina. My family moved here when I was about nine or 10, so I don't have an accent. I do say y'all and I love barbecue, so I consider myself North Carolinian by now. I went to a certain college in Chapel Hill for undergrad, which we will not discuss, but I saw the Light and I came to NC State uh, after a brief stint in the Peace Corps doing agricultural work. And, and where were you in the Peace Corps? So I served in two years in Paraguay. I mean, I was doing basically sustainable ag extension work. And then I did a third year in Costa Rica doing similar work. Amazing. And so without getting too much off the topic, I'm assuming that some of the things you've seen, you know, in those countries, you are now kind of transplanting, as it were, to your work here in in North Carolina. Absolutely. And one of the, the, I think, biggest ironies somewhat was that when I was in Paraguay, one of the new crops there was sesame. And then I moved to this position and only within a couple of years, we start looking at sesame as well. So it's kind of fun to see the connections there. But certainly, you know, a lot of what I was doing there was extension and extension is really universal in terms of just engaging with farmers and empowering farmers so that they can improve their production and and the overall livelihood of their families. So really that experience is what led me to where I am today. Doing that work, I eventually came to NC State and received both master's and PhD in the horticultural sciences department. So my background is actually in more in vegetable production. I worked with tomatoes and watermelon, but now in this current position, I'm working more with what we would consider kind of row crops, large acreage systems. So we look at new and emerging crops that can fit in rotation with corn and soybeans or tobacco and sweet potatoes. So there, there are certainly similarities, but the scale and, and the way in which they're grown is slightly different from what I did you know, during my, my uh, graduate degree. So what falls under the umbrella of alternative crops and why do we need them? Really, the way I look at it is anything that we can grow on kind of this larger acreage scale, right? So as I mentioned, something that could fit in rotation with corn and soybeans. So ideally, it is a crop that does not require huge shifts in terms of requiring a lot more uh, equipment or even having to learn a completely new system, right? Ideally, this would be something that could fit right in nicely, almost seamlessly within these production systems. And we really need to have alternative crops because we always want to continue to diversify our systems, right? Uh, Crop diversity, both in terms of spatial within a season, as well as temporal over time is critical for reducing economic volatility on farm You know, if I grow only corn one year and prices are really bad, that year is going to be really tough on me. Whereas if I've got corn and soybeans and sesame or maybe some other crop there, if corn isn't doing well, but soybeans are doing okay, I can still make it through that season. And the same goes when we think about trying to reduce pest and disease in our fields. If we have, say, corn and soybean year after year after year, we could start to build up specific weeds or diseases within that field. Having a rotation that could potentially break up that weed or pest cycle can be really critical when we think about the longevity of these systems. And then finally, you know, when we think about climate change, right, we are seeing extremes both in terms of drought, rain, and heat and cold, and experiencing, for example, I think a few years ago, we had a frost in May, which we almost never have. And so 
we need to have diverse systems so that we can, no pun intended, weather these changes better. And then also in North Carolina, tobacco has been such an important crop for us. And we're seeing changes in those systems. We're seeing farmers that have either completely moved away from tobacco or are starting to kind of partially move away from that. And they're going to need alternative crops to fit in. And I don't want to say completely replace tobacco, but at least help to diversify those systems. So with your research, and we'll get into some of the crops you're focused on, but with your research in general, you're really looking very holistically at the production system, at, I guess, the processing of whichever crop it may be, the, the markets that would be accessible to growers, but also about the deployment of the crop and perhaps offering that alternative to growers. Is that a fair description? Absolutely. We do try to look at this as a system. You know, it's it's not just that we're looking for a silver bullet, which I do not believe exists, right? There's not going to be that one crop that's going to save everybody and it's going to be the perfect crop. But I do think there are going to be crops that work for certain farmers and they may not work for other farmers. But it's also important to understand how that crop may interact with the other crops they're growing, right? And this is where that kind of systems thinking comes into place. It's important to understand how we grow the crop, you know, what are the cultural practices that are necessary? What is it that we need to do to meet that market demand? But it's also important to understand how that may affect my corn or my soybeans or my sweet potatoes, because what we don't want to do is introduce a crop that may negatively impact the other crops in our system, because on the whole, that would not be considered really a sustainable system. You know, ideally there are synergies there, but if not synergies, if nothing else, it does no harm, right? It builds on that system. And do you have growers coming to you then? Or are you aware of growers who are actively you know, searching for these alternative crops who are maybe more progressive and want to seek out new markets? How do you get this input from them? One of the things that we've done in my program is try to develop kind of a, a pipeline in terms of how we look at these alternative crops. And we think about the inputs in the pipeline, there's really two main inputs. The first will be market demand, right? If there's no market demand for a crop, why would a farmer want to grow it? The other potential input is coming from the farmers where they will say, hey, I'm trying to grow this crop, but I'm having this challenge or this issue where we can do applied research to try and address that issue. So we have had a lot of intimate contact with farmers who are either growing these crops or at least interested in growing these crops. One that you know we may talk about in a bit is sesame. So there is a very large market demand for it. We have done initial trials looking at the feasibility of producing it and start to understand what some of the cultural practices are needed to produce it. And now we're starting to shift into engaging with farmers in terms of how can we de-risk early adoption. We know we can produce the crop. We know there's a very strong demand. The next step is to see if it can be grown on large acreage with our farmers and then also help them out so that if for some reason it doesn't work out, they're not out of pocket a lot of money or have lost a lot of time in doing so. And so often we are working with farmers that you know we would say are, are a bit more progressive in terms of folks that will experiment more with new crops or at least have a history of more diverse systems. And how long is that adoption cycle generally taking? Because I'm assuming that growers are not going to go all in on a particular crop. They're going to plant a few acres one year. If that works out, then move to a bigger acreage. Are we talking a five-year cycle before a crop can become at scale, if you like, in a place like North Carolina, or is it even longer than that? It really depends on the crop and the farmer. So I'll give you an example of one that took off too quick, and that was floral hemp. And floral hemp is hemp that is grown for the female flowers that we extract cannabinoids from. The one that most people know about is CBD. And that industry really took off 
around 2017, and we just saw an explosion of acreage. And this is one where the cart went before the horse. The challenge there is that there was inflated demand in the sense that farmers either had heard that they could sell their crop or they knew of someone that made a lot of money growing it in your past, and people put in way too much in terms of production of floral hemp. And unfortunately, what we saw is that the demand just wasn't really there and basic economics took hold. And so we still have farmers today that have a lot of material they produced in 2019 in their barns that they can't sell. We're really trying to avoid that type of situation. At the end of the day, it's the farmer's farm, and they're going to make the decision in terms of how much they want to plant. But with sesame, for example, this is now the third year that we are going to be working with this crop, and we're only looking for farmers to ideally put in five or 10 acres, depending on their skill. Now, if you're a farmer that's got 2,000, 3,000 acres, 20 acres maybe nothing to you, right? So it's it's very much relative. But what we don't want is we don't want the farmer to feel, as I mentioned earlier, like they are out of pocket a lot of money or they have lost a lot of time uh, in doing this if it doesn't work out. Generally speaking, a three to five year time frame would be great for a new crop. But a lot of that depends too on what the market demand is like and if there are the processing capabilities for some of these crops. So fiber hemp is, is a perfect Yeah, let's example. talk about fiber hemp because yeah. you mentioned floral hemp. As you said, cut before the horse, a few people got burnt and maybe there will be a market in the future. But what about the fiber hemp that you've been working on? So there's a lot of interest growing in fiber hemp, not just here in North Carolina, but across the nation. What I think attracts a lot of people to fiber hemp that maybe they didn't like about floral hemp is that floral hemp is much more of a horticultural crop in the sense that it's very labor intensive. It's very expensive to grow. It costs anywhere from about ten dollars to $15,000 per acre from seed to processed material. Fiber hemp, on the other hand, is much more of a commodity crop. Generally speaking, it's about $300 to $500 per acre, depending on seed costs, highly mechanized. It's grown like you would grow wheat, basically. That is a crop, though, that has had what we call the chicken and egg issue. And what that describes is processors and end-use manufacturers will say, well, you know, I don't want to invest in a processing facility because nobody's growing it. And then farmers will say, well, I don't want to grow it because there's nowhere to get it processed. Fortunately, though, we are starting to see a lot of large processors, especially here in North Carolina, invest in new facilities or purchasing older facilities and utilizing them for fiber hemp processing. Currently, North Carolina is the only state in the nation that has both a large-scale decorticator, which is used to kind of separate the fiber from the other material, and a large-scale degummer, uh, which takes that fiber that has been separated and then kind of cleans it up so that it can then be spun. And I think what excites me most about that is that North Carolina has this historic and robust textiles industry. It doesn't take a lot to envision these circular economies where we're growing the crop, we're processing it, and then we are developing woven and non-woven products all within North Carolina. And so you, for instance, I know working with the College of Textiles here at NC State, can you say a little bit about what their areas of focus are then? Sure. Yeah. So we're working both with them and with the College of Natural Resources. So the College of Textiles, they're looking a lot at the processing of the fibers in terms of spinability, end-use manufacturing, looking at, at developing different products, or how can we you know, look at different garments, or how can we replace other fibers? So one of the areas that I think the textile industry is really excited about is that because fiber hemp is, or that the fibers from hemp are very long and very strong, you can replace a lot of the synthetics that are often used in a cotton synthetic blend. And so now you're looking at a cotton hemp blend t-shirt, pants, or whatever. It's a good story for farmers because now you can envision a cotton farmer also growing fiber hemp, and that's all going into the same processing facility potentially, or at least in the same garment. Um, but it's also better for the environment. And when we start to think about recyclability of these clothing or these materials, we're trying to work with them and engage with them, especially 
kind of thinking about what is it that we need to do from a field side of things in terms of genetics or cultural practices that can result in the highest grade fiber that they require. As I mentioned, we're also working with the College of Natural Resources. So with fiber hemp, we're harvesting the stem. And the stem is comprised of two parts. There's what's called the bast fiber, which is basically the bark of the stem. That's where those really long fibers are located. It also has a woody inner core, which is called the herd. Now, from a textiles perspective, the herd is a waste product. Historically, it's used for animal bedding. It actually makes a really good animal bedding. But there are a lot of industries starting to develop around the use and application of herd. And so folks at the College of Natural Resources are looking a lot at valorization of herd, whether that be from pulping and application in non-woven products like wipes and packaging materials or any other type of novel applications. The way that we're branding the work that we do here at NC State among the colleges is farm to fashion, right? Where we're looking at everything from, you know, the seeds, genetics to planting all the way to whatever garment may be developed from it. What do you see as the major challenges with fiber hemp for its scalability, if you like? You've mentioned some of the building blocks that clearly have been put in place here. Are there things that you worry about? Are there things that growers are worrying about that may hold that crop back, uh, at least in the short term? So from an agronomic perspective, one of the challenges that we faced initially was finding the appropriate genetics. Hemp is a day-length sensitive crop, meaning that it's going to grow vegetatively. It's going to grow taller and produce more leaves as long as the days are long or longer than a critical value. Once those days shorten towards the end of the season, it stops growing vegetatively and it starts to flower. Because we're growing for the stems, we want these plants to be very, very tall. Initially, when farmers were, were trying to grow fiber hemp, we were getting genetics from Europe, from Canada, that were bred in environments with much longer day lengths. And so when you grow them here in the Southeast with our shorter summers, they go to flower when they're maybe two to three feet tall. That's not a profitable crop. We have since found genetics that work primarily from China. But the challenges there are that A, we're shipping seeds all the way from China, which is just exorbitantly expensive. And B, we've seen some issues with the amount of THC that they can produce. So under the USDA guidelines, hemp has to produce less than 0.3% total THC. We've seen that within the population of these seeds that we're getting from China, they've not quite bred out the THC asynthase gene. And so we can get plants that will go above that 0.3% which can cause some issues for farmers. So genetics are an issue. We also have some challenges with available chemistries to use. So farmers want to use herbicides, for example. There's nothing labeled yet for hemp because it's a new crop. Now, the IR4 program is doing some really great work. It's starting to look at those products, but we really need to see some more chemistries available for our farmers, especially as it pertains to weed management. So moving away from hemp, you've mentioned sesame. We've talked about hemp. What other crops do you see as potentially very interesting, profitable for growers, meeting market needs that perhaps are a little bit under the radar right now in the consciousness of, say, the general public? doesn't have to be crops that you're working on yourself, but what do you see coming, if you like, in the next five to 10 years in terms of alternatives? One that we've done a little bit of work with is, and this is not necessarily new to the nation, but it's a bit newer to North Carolina, is organic sunflower. There's a growing demand for sunflower, and this is for human consumption, for oil. And we have found that sunflowers do very well for us here. They don't tend to like wet feet, but as long as you have relatively dry soils, or at least you have soils that can that can dry out relatively quickly, we can grow a wonderful crop of, of sunflowers here. And I think that the demand has just increased even more given the unfortunate war in Ukraine, because Ukraine is a huge sunflower producer. With the increased demand for organic sunflowers, we are starting to do more work in that realm because once again, it's another great alternative crop that can fit within those larger rotations. We've met with other companies about other potential crops to look at. One that we're curious about, though we still have some hesitation, is flax, both for seed and for linen. Many of the 
companies that are working with fiber hemp also want to use flax, linen. It's also a bast crop in terms of it comes from the stem, though the fibers have different aspects to them. And then of course, flax seed is basically everywhere now when you look at people's diet and it does grow quite well here. One other really nice aspect about flax and linen is that it grows over the winter. Many of our farmers, if they're not growing wheat, some of them may leave the field fallow over the winter. This is a crop that we could potentially put in there if we're not using cover crops. Uh, and then one that is not necessarily a crop I would consider as a cash crop, but one that I'm hoping we're going to see more of is our cover crops, right? We know that folks like Chris Rebercorn are doing really great work with breeding of cover crops. And it's not necessarily one that we do a lot of research in per se, but it's one that I think could still be considered alternative in the sense that it's not used in a lot of acreage, but really should be. And, and we're really hoping that as folks think more about climate smart practices, that they're going to be implementing more usage of cover crops. So the last question, the kind of crystal ball question, you know, putting all of this together, we're driving down I-40 in 10 years into Eastern North Carolina, or perhaps we're driving West. What would you predict to be the differences in the agricultural practices in the crops that we'll see in the field in that time period? Ooh, that's tough. That's really tough. So I do think we're going to see a lot more fiber hemp production. I think you're going to be driving down, you're going to be seeing six to eight foot tall fields of dense fiber hemp. The demand just keeps growing. As I mentioned earlier, the processors that are here, I think we're going to see a lot more of that. What I do hope though, in general, regardless of what the crops are, is that when we're driving down, we see a patchwork of different crops. And so it's not that we're going to see corn after corn after corn or tobacco after tobacco after tobacco. We're going to see all of these crops kind of mixed in and just general diversity on farm. I hesitate to say what we'll see in 10 years because I know I may be eating my words, but I'm really excited for agriculture here in North Carolina. I think one of the things that we are so fortunate to have here is that we have such a diverse production system as it is. And I see that only getting more diverse as we move forward. Well, David, thank you for that fascinating glimpse into the future, which you are actually helping to construct. So it's been a pleasure to have you on the pod. Thank you, Adrian. AgTech 360 is a product of North Carolina State University, the center of Excellence for Regulatory Science in Agriculture, or SIRSA, the North Carolina Plant Sciences Initiative, and the Southern IPM Center. This episode was produced by Kayla Pack Watson with host Adrian Percy. With AgTech 360, we take a 360 degree view into emerging agriculture technologies that matter. Thanks for listening.